On today's docket, we discuss the court system in the United States. This is part three of a three-part series looking at the American court system. In the first two episodes, we looked at an overview of the court system, as well as how it works in the state courts in general in one state, Florida, in specifically. Now we're going to look at the federal court system, the federal judiciary. The Four Legal English Podcast is now in session. Welcome to the Four Legal English Podcast. This is the show for lawyers, law students, and other professionals from all over the world who want to improve both their legal English and legal knowledge. In this podcast, we discuss different legal topics, such as law in the news, law in practice, legal writing, legal movies, and other issues. This podcast does not constitute legal advice. If you need legal advice, consult an attorney. You can check out our blog articles, available courses, and the show notes for this episode on our website. That's four is in the number four, legalenglish, no spaces or dashes, dot com. Fourlegalenglish.com. I'm Timothy Barrett, your host. I'm a former practicing attorney from the United States, more recently a law professor in Tbilisi, Georgia, and currently an author and podcast host, among other things. Court System in the United States. This is Part 3, Law in Practice. The Federal Court System. So let's look at the federal judiciary. We'll start by looking at the U.S. Constitution itself. Article 3, Section 1 says, quote, The judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court, and in such inferior courts as the Congress may from time to time ordain and establish. The judges both of the supreme and inferior courts shall hold their offices during good behavior and shall at stated times receive for their services a compensation which shall not be diminished during their continuance in office. Close quote. So that section from Article 3 of the U.S. Constitution outlines the setup of the federal judiciary and kind of provides a a couple of key features. You know, one, that we do have a Supreme Court, and it's interesting in the original, Supreme is not capitalized, it's a lower S, Um, but of course now it's a specific court, we we usually have capital S and capital C, and Congress has established two other layers, you know, the, the court of first instance, second instance, and the third instance. But theoretically, they could get rid of you know, the circuit courts, the, the Court of Appeals or anything like that, they, that is one of the powers of Congress. But they can't get rid of the Supreme Court. And judges in the federal judiciary have lifetime appointments, and their pay cannot be reduced. Now, why do you think that is? Maybe you're familiar with this system already, but why do you think that you know, 240 years ago, they kind of came up with this idea. Well, it was in response to the British. They didn't like how, 
during the time of the revolution or before the revolution, that judges would come and go as the king pleased. So they wanted judges to have protection from that, even though if the governor or the president or whoever comes and goes, we don't want the judges to be beholden to whoever's holding the office at the time. They want the judges to kind of be outside of that political system. So they gave the judges lifetime appointments. Now, one way that that can be abused or kind of evaded is if the, the Congress or the president could cut their wages. And you know, if Congress could say, okay, we can't get rid of Judge Jones, but his salary next year is going to be $1, then you know, that's almost the same thing as firing him, or, or potentially it could be. So the, they learned that trick as well. Constitution doesn't specify how much anyone is going to get paid, but it does specify the judges, once they are once they have received a salary, it can't go down. It can't be less than it was previously. Now, often we'll call these judges Article Three judges. Article Three being the section of the Constitution that deals with the judiciary, as opposed to an Article One judge. Article One in the Constitution specifies the powers of Congress. So there are some courts or quasi-courts, semi-courts, that are set up by Congress but are not U.S. courts that are not part of the Article Three court system. The big example of this would be immigration courts. So if you're in immigration court, you would still call the person in charge judge, but they're an Article I judge. They're not an Article Three judge. So they're not, their power is not from Article Three of the Constitution, but Article I of the Constitution from Congress. They're usually appointed by the president. I think most of the time they have a 10-year term, not lifetime. So Article I judge is quite different than an Article III judge. How are judges appointed? They are nominated by the president, who submits that, their name to the U.S. Senate, and the Senate can approve or reject them. This is true for all officers of the United States and all treaties the United States signs. So if the president wants to sign a treaty, obviously he can put his signature, but it's not binding on the United States. He has to submit that treaty to the U.S. Congress, to the Senate specifically. The same thing for all officers of the United States. So when a new president is elected, at the beginning of any presidency, once the president is inaugurated and for the next few months, a big part of the presidency and, and the Senate's role is to approve their new advisors, their new cabinet officers, you know, Secretary of State, Attorney General, and the deputies, all of those people have to be approved by the Senate before they can officially take over. If the Senate and the presidency are of the same party, usually it goes much faster. If they're at opposing parties, you know, they can take a little bit longer. And so it's something similar with the judges. Starting in the 80s, when Judge Bork was nominated to the Supreme Court and was rejected, a lot of the Supreme Court appointments are very contentious. Over time, those struggles have increased to the circuit court as well as the district court, the trial court judges. Often the Senate is very slow to approve judges, even when the Senate and the president are of the same power. This was true with Bush in a Republican Senate or Obama in a Democrat Senate. They, they put up a lot of names, but not all of them get through. While Trump was president, he had one term, four years, he appointed 234 judges. 
That's three to the Supreme Court, 54 circuit court judges, and 174 district court judges. To put that in perspective, President Obama only appointed 329, and he had two terms. So Trump and the Republican Senate really went through a lot of nominations and got a lot approved while he was president. And of course, three Supreme Court justices in, in four years is kind of unheard of. I think it's been several decades since a president appointed three justices in one term. And there have been certainly some presidents who've had two terms that only appointed one Supreme Court justice. Another important concept with judges are senior judges. When a judge is appointed, they're appointed for life, but they don't have to stay on the bench for life. They can retire. They do have a system where they can actually kind of semi-retire. The judge will retire, so then there's a vacancy on the court so that the president can nominate somebody else and somebody else can fill that seat. But that retired judge can still hear cases. And so they can decide, you know, how many cases they want to hear, how busy they want to be, or, you know, maybe they want to take, you know, a few months off here and there, or they just want to work a few days a week, or what kind of cases they want to work. But often senior judges will, will stay active on the bench. They will still hear cases, even though they're, they're in the retirement range. As we've already discussed, Congress has established two levels below the Supreme Court of the United States. If we look at it from the court of first instance, we call that the district court. The court of second instance is the circuit court of appeals, sometimes just called the appellate court or the circuit court. And the court of third instance is the Supreme Court of the United States. And sometimes they'll abbreviate this SCOTUS, S-C-O-T-U-S. Now, who has jurisdiction? How do we determine which court to file a new claim? Because we have this dual system. We have state courts and we have federal courts. So if you can imagine a Venn diagram where two circles, but kind of in the middle, they overlap. There are some cases that maybe have exclusive state jurisdiction. So these are matters between people within that state they're not really subject to federal jurisdiction for, for one reason or another. The other, the other circle would be exclusive federal jurisdiction. So there are some things set up by the Constitution, such as admiralty, bankruptcy, antitrust, copyright laws, um, patents, those types of things. Um, any suit against the United States, so if you're filing a claim against the United States, or if the United States is filing a claim against a person or a company, those all have exclusive federal jurisdiction. They have to go to federal court. And then there are some cases that might have concurrent jurisdiction. So it could go to federal court or it could go to state court. And these are maybe federal questions or diversity of citizenship cases. Someone from Florida is suing someone from New York. They could file it in Florida or in New York. But the defendant sometimes has the right, you know, depending on the circumstances, to remove that case from the state court and take it to federal court. And under the Constitution, we can imagine the powers to the government are, are something similar to this type of, of Venn diagram, where we have some powers are supposed to be reserved for the state governments, 
Some powers are delegated to the national government, the U.S. government, but yet there's that kind of overlapping of shared or concurrent powers. How is the federal court organized? Well, like we said, there's district courts, and there are 94 districts. So each state has at least one district, but many states will have you know, two or three or even four districts within that state. Because of the, the population within that state, they'll have more than one district within the state. For example, New York has the northern district, the southern district, the eastern, and the western district. There are 677 district court judges. The district court is the trial court. They will handle jury trials and bench trials. And often district courts will also use magistrates to help the judge. We talked a little bit about magistrates in episode 20. Uh, so if you're interested about those, you can learn more about those in that episode. And the district court judge can assign certain decisions, certain matters to the magistrate to maybe investigate, hold a hearing, hold an evidentiary hearing, and then make a determination and submit that to the district court. And the district court judge is free to accept it or reject it, of course. Let's look at the court of second instance, the Circuit Court of Appeals. The country is divided into 13 circuits, and there are about 180 judges that are circuit court judges. Usually they will handle things on a three-judge panel, but if it's an important case, they might hear it on banc, where everyone from that circuit, all the judges from that circuit, will sit on the panel and decide the case. So after a case is decided by a three-judge panel in the circuit court, a party could appeal to the Supreme Court of the United States or to the Circuit Court of Appeals again, asking for an en banc panel to hear it. The Circuit Court will hear appeals from the District Court, and any decisions are binding on the District Courts within that circuit. Unlike most state courts, which may be binding on all courts in the state, so let's move on to the Supreme Court of the United States. SCOTUS. So the Supreme Court has nine justices, and they always hear cases en banc. All of them sit together. And they have no advisory opinions. They would never give advice such as, oh, in this situation, this is how we would rule, hypothetically. They only deal with actual cases and controversies, which is a requirement in the Constitution. And it can declare laws or acts unconstitutional. And other courts can do that as well, but that decision can be appealed. If the Supreme Court declares it unconstitutional, then there's really no more appeal. It is the court of last resort. Unless the court in the future changes its mind, that's the last that you're going to hear about it. Most of the appeals are discretionary. So the court can choose what kind of cases do we want to hear. The process of that is a writ of certiori, which is a Latin term but often we just call it cert, a writ of cert, or if the court grants cert, grants certiori, then they will hear the case. If denied, the court will not hear that case. So you kind of have to ask for permission to even file an appeal. That's what the writ of certiori is. The Supreme Court runs on what we call an October term. So they start their docket in October, and then they'll go the rest of the year. 
in September, October, they'll make announcements about which cases they're going to accept, and they'll kind of fill up their docket. And of course, they have some vacancies. You know, they'll they'll keep some slots open because something might come up later that they want to hear. But after that, they will start setting the docket. So setting when briefs are due, when oral arguments will be held. Oral arguments are usually held for one hour, so each side gets thirty minutes. And if you're interested about that, I've talked a little bit about that in just the the prior episode, episode thirty-one. The judges will also sit in conference together when they choose which cases that they will accept or how they will decide on the cases, they will sit in a conference, all nine of them together, with nobody else. So they'll shut the door. If somebody knocks, it's the lowest justice, the the newest justice on the bench, who's responsible for answering the door, that sort of thing. It's just the nine justices meeting in that conference. And they'll decide, you know, which side has the better argument, or maybe more importantly, who is going to write the opinion. And as the opinions are written, they might change their, their mind. Certainly some opinions are written with that swing vote in mind, trying to maintain the majority, uh, you know, not convince one of the justices to vote with the other side. Most of the cases are decided almost unanimously. I'm looking at the, the docket from 2020, so this is three years ago now, but there were 67 cases in 29 cases were decided unanimously. There was no dissent. And 10 cases were decided with just one dissent. So 8-1 or 7-1. So that is most of the cases. That's 58% of the cases. But of course, the most interesting cases are usually the very close ones, the 5-4 decisions, or sometimes the 6-3, 5-3 decisions. In 2020, there were 24 of those cases, or over a third of the cases were like that. Unlike the English system, the judges don't write individual opinions. The court will write one opinion. We call that the majority opinion or the opinion of the court. Now, justices are free to write a concurring opinion where they might say, I agree with the court's decision, but I don't agree with this, or I would go a little bit farther, or I would analyze it in a different way, even though I come up with the same result. And of course, they can also write a dissenting opinion which is saying, I disagree, I dissent. The court got it wrong. I disagree with my fellow justices. What questions do you have about today's episode? You can post those questions or any comments on the show notes. This is a great way to practice and improve your legal English skills. You can go to the website for, as in the number four, legal English, no spaces or dashes, forlegalenglish.com. You can check out our blog articles and show notes for this episode and check out the episode quizzes. It'd be fantastic if you could subscribe and give us a review. If you could leave us five stars and a nice comment, it would really help the algorithm and other people to find our podcast. If you leave a great review, I might even read it on the air. So start writing. The 4 Legal English Podcast is adjourned. Don't miss the next docket call. (laughs) 